This is Advice Amplified. This episode's guest is Ed Gascoigne. We've got a real issue brewing, um, and and the industry does have a real problem coming. Ed is a chartered financial planner with FLM. He's a really forward-looking advisor who's into the more technical aspects of the role and, and loves a bit of cash flow modeling. I got some custom dice made up. One of them is, when are you going to die? A bit morbid. And the other is, what sequence of market returns do you experience in the first five to 10 years of your retirement? In this episode, we look at the future of financial planning and really dig into some of the issues that the industry is facing right now. Will the consumer duty ensure that there are no bad actors in the UK advisory population? No, not even close. I hope you love this episode. Please do subscribe to the podcast now and check us out over on LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube at Advice Amplified. Ed, welcome to Advice Amplified. No, thank you for having me. So, consumer duty, how is it going? What are we saying? (laughs) It's hard to work out if it's a great change and paradigm shift or if actually it's no shift at all. Some of the I-dotting, T-crossing, specific manner of communication and completion will carry different impacts dependent on how an advisor runs their, their, their practice or their client bank. In its grounding and in its core, it is rooted in the correct principles. There's, there's so much in the press right now, especially around like charging and different, I suppose, charging models and business models. So it really... Um, yeah, we probably should dig into that and, and kind, of, yeah. kind of ask your thoughts. But For me, an advice process is about helping a client understand what they truly care most about financially. Helping a client understand how well or to what extent they are or aren't on track to achieve that which matters most to them. And then helping explore whether an advice-based relationship could be value-additive in moving a client closer to what matters most to them. And then, then we move on to talk about Transparently, it's it, 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 it's inane to expect that doing something with professional help formally engaged could ever be less expensive than doing it all yourself. So there is a delta, there's an implied delta in charging between doing everything yourself or doing it with help. You know, I think an advice process should then give the client the option of knowing what you know now as a result of these conversations. Do you feel empowered to take action yourself without me? In which case, great. Um, or do you want me on your shoulder and, and, and explain and clearly quantify the, the delta in charging that's there and the impact that that can have if the advice isn't value additive. But then I think also a talented planner should be able to articulate and evidence both the qualitative and the quantitative benefits of engaging advice. It's not just hassle factor reduction and peace of mind. Those two are real, but they're difficult to put a specific value on. But if an engaged advisory relationship can make somebody more tax efficient, can improve the theoretical asset allocation of their planning, um, can ensure that they aren't coasting towards a shortfall in the future, these things are and should be quantifiable. And to my mind, they can be shown net of charges to be demonstrative of, of the value of advice. Look, speaking candidly, the underlying mathematical complexities of UK-based financial planning are, in my opinion, not necessarily that great. Um, There are only so many tax wrappers. um, There's only so much maths that underpins kind of optimal asset allocation, planning for a range of probabilistic outcomes. But each individual that you speak with is different. I think for me, looping back to the consumer duty point, um, one observation that I have that I think the regulation does not 
necessarily pick up that well is that different people have different reasons for engaging help and advice. Um, for some, it might lean more on the qualitative than on the quantitative. For some, it might be the other way around. Some might not necessarily know. Um, and for a number of clients, it might be the net of the fact that it isn't free of charge. Engaging advice actually isn't correct. Um, and so I think the market has a responsibility to find a solution for each of these different strands. Otherwise, the advice gap, you know, won't, it's not going to close itself. Do you think that's like um, really key for an advisor to kind of own or, or have, <clears throat> I suppose have an interest in the kind of technical aspects of the planning and really be close to that? Or is that something you can break apart and have a financial advisor who's much more of a, a kind of sales and relationship person and leave the technical stuff to, to one side? Or? Look, I think I, you know, I focus my efforts now in, in, in the private client space. And so it's not uncommon for me to be beauty paraded against a Coots or an RBC or whoever it might be. And the running joke at my end, um, which stems from a chap who rejoined my team, uh, having left our business a few years ago and went to Coots and then came back to join me. You go for a meeting with a Coots, you'll have six people in the room. Three won't say anything, um, but they're there to make the numbers look good. Um, and so that the oak paneled room doesn't look too big. And then you'll effectively have you know, the, the relationship manager um, a para planner, maybe an investment analyst. I personally, um, I'm not a salesperson. In the words of my dad, I, I couldn't sell rope to a drowning man, and that's okay. Um, but I'd like to think that I carry enough soft skills to actually be able to be both technical advisor and relationship manager. I think for a client, if they can, if they can believe correctly that the individual that they deal with is technically proficient always has their best interests at heart, really cares about their situation and is able to put those three components together at outset and on an ongoing basis. I, for me, that's where I believe the best client outcomes come from. I'm like reflecting back to when I um, moved into the industry and did all my exams, had a computing degree, was super into maths and, and all that kind of stuff. And but I looked at financial advice as I was moving into it and thought, that's, this, is a, this is a sales job and there's no space for that kind of technical preference or technical slant. And Look, I, I, I have a genuine regret that um, I would as, as, as a self-professed maths nerd, but I have a genuine regret that often <clears throat> in our industry, the most financially successful individuals attain that status by having great sales and marketing engines um, or by being very good interpersonally rather than necessarily being technically proficient. Look, do, do I feel that that is the key issue that the industry has as a result of 25, 30, whatever it might be, years of um at times malfeasance no i think you know i'm sure we can talk about this at some point i think those that want to do ill will always do ill and i think that is an issue that the industry has and is better but still carries from before but there is you know and i i say this with no disrespect there is an implied knowledge gap between client and advisor um and that can make it very difficult, I think, for a retail client to understand if the proposal is truly the very most optimal for their circumstances. How can you expect a retail client to be able to extrapolate forward 25 years into the future and understand whether a tax-deferred offshore bond-based strategy or accrual in GIA with crystallizations against capital gains tax exemptions and above and beyond thereof? It, it, it's unfair to expect the client to be able to check the working of the advisor. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think technical proficiency 
is a is a must. Um, but to, to 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 your point of when you were looking at potentially joining the industry as an advisor yourself, I think there is an imbalance um, of where success typically comes from. I suppose what's your observations or predictions for new people coming into the industry or I suppose the ever increasing average age of an advisor going up. Yeah. You've always got these kind of two tails of, of not conflict, but it's, it, it's one of my favorite stats, right? So, so, so as well as advising, you know, I kind of, I'm, I'm part of the leadership group of our practice. And for each year that I've watched this stat, the average age of a financial advisor has increased by almost exactly one year. Now, you know, I may, I may have read French and Spanish at university and I may not be a maths genius, but even I know that that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. The average age of an IFA, I believe currently is 59. If they have, if they have followed the same advice that God willing they're giving to their clients, they themselves should be approaching a stage where they're aspiring to a life post work. And if we as an industry can't backfill that gap, we can't leave the jersey in a better place and empower the advisors that follow on from us to be at each stage of their developmental journey proportionately more skilled than we were then, we've got a real issue brewing. Um, and, and the industry does have a real problem coming. We haven't recruited a qualified advisor now for seven to eight years. Um, and since that time, we've probably grown in total headcount numbers by 15 to 20, and we would have backfilled advisors of ours that have left. Um, but that means bringing in somebody who is willing to apply themselves and willing to learn and willing to listen, who is willing to dedicate 18 to 24 months to learning the profession, shadowing a senior advisor. Um, and speaking candidly, it's not a... It's not a cheap endeavor in terms of financial commitment. Um, the average number of jobs that somebody will now fulfill in their career, I think, is 11. And so you have a non-100% success rate of taking somebody from starry-eyed youngster through to somebody that's been advising for 10 to 15 years. Um, for a business, for a financial planning practice that carries some scale, that is manageable. Um if you run a small practice, um, one, two advisors, two, three support staff, I think especially post-consumer duty, finding transition and succession um, might not be entirely straightforward. And that could that, that, that could broaden the advice gap still further. Because you've got that, that I, I guess, trend going on with advisors, but I wonder if there's a your thoughts on an overlap with you know is the same happening with clients clients of, of financial advice is is that an aging population so to speak and, and how does that correlate i guess with a, a new generation of advisors coming through who might be more able to engage the, the next cohort of clients and there's massive dynamism in um how a client bank matures develops changes over time there's there's a first tier observation i would make that the clients that are 60 to 65 present day grew up with a different set of norms to the clients that are 30 to 35 today, their children. And so do I feel like an advisor who has worked out how to advise a 60 to 65 year old necessarily knows how to advise their children? No. Um, could that create friction or disengagement for the industry eventually? Yeah, I think it probably could. But the fundamentals, fundamentals haven't changed. Um, and in fact, the requirement for them has become still more pronounced. If you look at that generation that is now at or in retirement, it was 
it's probably more the norm than not for people to accrue final salary pension benefits for at least a part of their career. It scares me the extent to which it's it, it's difficult present day to accrue sufficient financial resources to have an implied retirement that looks like the same kind of time frame as one's parents, the same kind of viability of income throughout one's lifetime. People live longer. Um, Defined benefit pension accrual is less common. Um, in case we hadn't noticed, things are considerably more expensive in the UK today than they were a couple of years ago. So I think the the, the value of the profession is arguably more pronounced now than ever. Um, but you're yeah, you're right to highlight it. I think unless you can work out how to engage that generation that's 30 to 35, 30 to 40 present day, you can't expect to have the same kind of robustness of client bank 30 years from now. Like you say, the average is 11 different job hops. I think it's seven pensions now. So there's all that complexity, whereas just one DB pension, retire age 60. Yeah, it's way, way more complicated. Some of the supposed saving graces, when you look at RoboAdvice 1.0, the underlying cost of actually just putting your kind of financial planning online, so to speak, is is, is kind of analogous or in some cases more expensive than, than working with a you know, human professional, I suppose. It, it, do I think that's necessarily always the case? No, and I think a a well-informed client who is willing to take responsibility for their own decisions can and should be avail uh, can and should be able to avail themselves of some of the offerings that are now in the market. And I think for the right person at the right time with the right requirements, that really can make sense. The a, a concern that I have is that it only takes a misstep. Um, which then compounds moving forward to potentially compromise the cost savings that somebody has made. Um, I was speaking to a client earlier this week who will move to Spain in retirement. And of course, if you Google, you know, UK expat moving to Spain retirement, funnily enough, the first 38 pages are, are filled with CureOps promoters. I wonder why, right? It's a game of SEO, AdWords, whatever all of this clever tech-based stuff is called. And it's easy for that retail client to feel like, well, if these are the first 38 pages of the search results, this must be what I should do. If they don't have a human on their shoulder that's experienced in the space who can help them explore the pros and the cons of the potential decision and help them understand the motivations of the the, the, the firms that are promoting those schemes, it can be very easy to, to destroy a considerable portion of a lifetime's wealth. Um, yeah, petrifyingly easy to do mm -hmm. so. I guess with you know pe people often look at consumer duty and say, well, it's the the next attempt at implementing RDR, and it's really just like a reinforcement. Um, and, and you kind of you have to step back and look at why didn't it work the first time? Is there any? Is it just human nature? Is it the nature of a market? Is it the nature of an industry to have some bad actors in there and, and some some challenges that need to be addressed? And it, you know, it, I, I suppose my question is like, in, do you think? Fundamentally, there will be a change and a, a different reality in a year or two once consumer duty is bedded in, or is this? <laughs> I'm a big fan of Morgan Housel, um, who wrote The Psychology of Money, which if you haven't read it, by the way, this isn't a plug. Obviously, I've got no skin in the game, but you really must read it. It's like the best text on how we as humans interact with money. He talks about the value of being a realistic optimist when you think about things. And that's 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 how I like to think of myself. With regret, I carry a degree of pessimism and, and, and a disappointing confidence that no amount of regulation is likely to solve the presence of malfeasance and ne'er-do-wells. You know, before we kicked off today, I know we were talking about 
for a scammer, a hacker, the banking side of things, they only have to find one angle that a bank hasn't yet thought of closing off. Will the consumer duty ensure that there are no bad actors in the UK advisory population? No, not even close. Um, however, if implemented appropriately, can it help to underpin an overall improvement in standards or servicing or documentation? Yeah, I think it can. I think it can. I think it will take time to work its way through. I think there will be some bumps in the road. Um but 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 I think at its core, the aspiration is a good one. Where, where's your? What's the thing you're most excited about when you when you look forward, um, you know, two five years into the future with the industry and like the, those nubs of of change or um, you know, real, real challenge or opportunity? I want to see those that are in the industry to do good and to do the right thing by clients, underpinned by tech that perhaps has an ability to calculate or forecast things that they as an individual are not necessarily coded to do. I do, I, I do this thing with clients where I say, look, we're, as humans, we're very well programmed to see the next three, six, 12 months. When I speak to clients and they've got the school fees coming up or whatever it might be, don't worry, they understand to the penny what that looks like. But helping somebody extrapolate forward 10, 20, 30 years hence is really, really difficult to do. And I Speaking candidly, I don't necessarily know that every financial planner is coded to be able to do that appropriately. Some linear, linear return assumption cash flow modeling can help you show a client they're going to be okay. Does it really evidence to the client that agnostic of the sequence of returns that they ultimately experience, they will be okay? Maybe, maybe not. I got some custom dice made up a year ago. One of them is when are you going to die? A bit morbid, that one. Um, and the other is what sequence of market returns do you experience in the first five to 10 years of your retirement? And it's this set piece of, you know, unless you really look into this stuff with deep technical understanding, what you're effectively doing is rolling those dice. You only get to roll them once. And if they say that you live to be more than 95 and they say that you get a poor sequence of market returns in the first five to 10 years of retirement, I can tell you that unless you're amongst the very most well-funded few, you will run out of money. But of course, if, if, if an advisor can use tech to underpin visibility of that and to present it in a graphical, comprehensible fashion, we can drive continual improvement in forecast future client outcomes. I think the average, the average drawdown pot, I think, is now drawn on at a rate of something like 8% per annum. That is not good news. If, if you've done any reading around safe withdrawal rates, if you've done any technical work where you take a, a distribution of implied re returns and you run a, a simulation many times over into the future, which is the kind of thing I know you do, knowing your background, you and I both know how that story is very capable of ending. If as an industry we can stop legitimizing that kind of strategy because it's the easiest form of client engagement not to deliver the hard truth, and actually, we can help the client understand the potential implied future um, outcomes of their present day actions. You know, that for me represents one area where where tech can really, really add value. I love cash rate modeling and just generally playing around with numbers and scenario modeling. And when I'm doing anything with my own personal finances or planning, that's, you jump straight to a spreadsheet and play around with some numbers. And I think... The, the technology that's emerged definitely for, for me at least over the last decade and just observing that happen it feel like you know it's, it's facilitating conversations that 
may have been happening, but would have been so much harder and so much less engaging, I suppose, between advisor and client. Now. They, they were very binary as well. You know, you look to the industry. I'm not the, the, the oldest animal in the zoo. I haven't always been here, but I've got an awareness of what went in the past. And it's not that long ago that it was it was about the magic number. You know, an advisor and client would agree a number that they were going to target. And that was because, you know, the advisor would say, well, you get there, you take 5% out a year, it returns 5% a year, it's all going to be okay. As an industry, we have progressed past that point. Um, so, yeah, change, progress, iterative development is, is and should be happening all the time. And like you say, I suppose with the... The realities of, of products that are available and you know options that the clients have there's only so much complexity that can exist in those models so we, i mean we were talking earlier about some of the like exciting developments that are existing with, with tech and some of the challenges with like a straightforward deterministic linear model in, in cash remodeling do you think they'll reach a point where there is no more complexity to enter into those tools and there's there's a new kind of avenue to explore for the advisor client tech kind of yeah i think I, I i think it could and arguably should happen if you look un, until you're kind of in the private client wealth space realistically clients should accrue wealth in paper wealth in pensions isas gia slash unit trust um maybe some tax reducers to a relatively smaller extent um and maybe some some offshore bond-based planning it's not a huge product suite um, from a tax wrapper perspective. And, you know, I welcome any challenges that people want to send in to say, well, actually, you should be doing this because, you know, always happy, always happy to learn. Then you take a stochastic model of the the, the underlying investments wrapped within those tools. Um, you run a simulation through into the future that looks at the good, the bad, the ugly, and helps one understand ahead of time. You can start to formulate strategies before things even happen. Um, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Client, you're 53 now. You'd like to stop work at 60. I need to help you understand that actually, if this were to happen in the interceding seven years, I might need to ask you to push retirement back a year or two. Would that be okay? No, 60, absolute set in stone. Okay, if that were to be the case, then I might need to prepare you for the fact that in those first years of retirement, you spend £52,000 a year rather than £60,000 a year. No, we absolutely need £60,000 a year. Okay, well, in which case I might need to inform you that if this were to happen, by the time you're 87 to 88, you might be living on an income of this rather than that. I'm, Yeah, that sounds more like what we're looking for, Red. And so tech can and should be the underpin. The, the, the next logical follow-on question without meaning to preempt it is probably one of, so what's the point of a human being? Um, you know, do we, as, do we as humans make ourselves redundant? Um I will be surprised if that happens. Do I think financial planning as a profession has a 100, 200-year shelf life from here? Not as we know it, no. An advisor that truly cares about the client has the soft skills to interpret and help them understand what it is that they're saying, what it is that they mean. Maybe AI will prove me wrong, uh, and maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now, um, it'll be a different space, but... But yeah, I think I think I think the industry has has a little way to go yet before we start talking about the robots taking over the world. I, I, I listened to um, Sam Altman, the CTO of uh, OpenAI, talking on Joe Rogan's podcast recently, and he he said um, how interesting it was observing kind of the change over the last five or ten years in, in predictions about AI and how actually 
it's, it's no longer taking those more straightforward kind of manual tasks away. It's jumping straight to a supporting role in knowledge work and, and actually doing some of the creative work. And I think it, it seems like, you know, your prediction or, or belief is, is really well aligned to AI being like an autonomous agent that can support a human conversation and maybe think creatively or, or put some ideas on the table or, you know, spot some of those patterns, but not necessarily replace the interaction or owner or leader. Yeah, I think there's in, in, in the role of an advisor, there are, there are many different hats that one wears and there are many different tasks that one fulfills. I think the dream, the dream for clients is that their advisor has as much time available as possible for them. When I'm, when I'm with clients, I really endeavor to make sure I'm, I'm not just physically present, but I'm a hundred percent mentally present. Um, I saw a chap for lunch yesterday and I know, I know what it means to him to know that he truly has my attention when I'm there. As an advisor, you carry certain stuff around in your head at the moment because the tech-led underpin of client delivery isn't yet perfect. The more that the, 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 the human advisor can truly be underpinned by appropriate, effective, well-built, well-thought-through, client-outcome-centric tech, the more you free that advisor's mental capacity their random access memory to be with the client and so i think the two the two in the two in conjunction the right tool the right tech with the right humanist advisor it can be hugely powerful when we look at the advice gap growing and growing and growing the average age of advisor going up the challenges for new people coming into the industry to, to, to kind of peel clients and, and grow is tech the answer to solving the advice gap do you see that that happening in five or ten years um yeah, I think no. On this one, I think I would be. I think I would be a um, an optimistic realist or a realistic optimist. Yeah, I think I would. Does that mean I know how to build it myself? No. Um, I'd like to think I'm a half decent financial planner, but I'm definitely not capable of building this stuff out. So, interestingly, the <clears throat> the modeling software that we use now, I very much had the idea of a number of years ago. My previous life was working in and around sports betting. You know, I worked at Betfair as an early stage business when they first started to trade proprietary risk, and I worked with their ma uh, their mathematician at the time, looking at this stuff, and it's like, wow, this is like, this is cool. It's really exciting. Um, and so I wanted to bring allowance of variability of returns into my client work. I didn't know how to do it, but then a bright chap who we both know who he is kind of built this thing, you know, and they're doing really well, and it's great to see. There will be hopefully more and more instances of tools like that being brought and delivered to market. And I think they they have to be a net positive both to clients and to the ability of advisors to, to find their feet, to have that random access memory available for when they speak with clients. Um, and to remove some of the some of the potentially time soak activities that enable them to focus on something that is appropriately more revenue generative because obviously advisors heavily regulated loads of kind of stuff laying around in their head that they need to be concerned about or thinking about or considering very con controlled conversations have to be had with the client because of those considerations great in lo lots of lots of respects and then you've got i guess regulation on the platform side and then yeah. increasingly text doing more and more in the, in the kind of middle of that process with, with no regulation wrapped around it at all um you know automated workflows and crms or cash flow modeling and stochastic modeling tools that are making indications in various ways. Do you, do you think that's right? Should, should some of this stuff be? <laughs> um, look, we, we talked about it before we kicked off today and I won't use the word that I use then, but the, the slight issue that I have with, 
this type of modeling is if the uh if you put a certain thing in you get a certain thing out um that isn't that isn't the fault of the tool the tool only knows the input that's been given to it by the human what it does mean is that ai isn't a solution from beginning to end and absolving the human in totem because for for for, for as long as it isn't the sole solution and there is a human involved in the process um the human needs to know what they're doing in terms of how they use the tool i can't, I can't remember the other bit of the question that you yeah asked me, sorry yeah i think i think that's i mean it, it's exactly that isn't it that as long as the human being is, is is the driver then everything else is a tool and if that point in flex then the tool is the thing that should be regulated and controlled and and, and measured and the human being's just the the pilot in that case i suppose yeah yeah and i think you know, I know, I know. There's a big name provider who have been doing some work in that space over recent months. I spoke to a chat from there earlier this week. The future is always coming, um, but that should be embraced by advisors. That's a good thing. What it, one of the one of the things that I say to our younger advisory population at work is: these things typically sweep from the bottom up. Um, and so for as long as I've advised, I've done everything that I can to constantly develop, um, be it interpersonally or technically. Because when I look at the Premier League table and I look at who gets relegated each year, it's the bottom three teams, it's not the top three. Um, and so so I think as an advisor, even aside from personal cerebral stimulation, if you've got half a commercial brain on you, it makes sense to always make sure that you're as high up that league table as you can be. And that is how ultimately you elongate the time of viability in the profession i feel like uh on that that's, that's gonna be one of those kind of two minutes of conversation that'll be percolating in my brain for a while that's, that's really really cool but um yeah i mean thanks thanks so much no, really no, enjoy that <laughs> good conversation as always